Hello, you are listening to the Scouted Football Podcast. It is June slash July 2021 uh, amidst the European Championships. Um, some seriously entertaining knockout fixtures have already taken place and no doubt there are plenty more on the horizon. Um, today though, we're going a little off-piste from our recent Euros coverage, uh, back to the usual format, which is a particular topic in the world of under 23 and youth football, if this is your, your first time listening. Um, and for that reason, uh, we jumped at the chance to, to get Ryan on the podcast as he revealed on Twitter Twitter that his new book, uh, The Dream Factory, Inside the Make or Break World of Football's Academies, was coming out. Uh, and I believe that's about five or six weeks away from, from being available. But I think you can pre-order now from places like Amazon. Um, but uh, Ryan was good enough to, to send over a copy of the book. And, and I've managed to, to leaf through a, a decent portion over the past few days. And, and I have to say, from a personal perspective, for somebody who's you know really interested in this, this kind of thing, um, the, the comprehensive detail, the anecdotes, the insight is all absolutely, absolutely brilliant. Um, so without further ado, uh, Ryan, welcome to the Scouted Football Podcast. How are things with you? Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah I'm good. Thank you. I appreciate the chance to come on and, and uh, talk about my book a little bit. So yeah, thanks for, thanks for having me. Well, no, I was just saying, wasn't I, in sort of the, the, a little preamble before we started recording that, you know, in terms of uh, the, the Scouted Football Podcast, uh, Academy Football, that the pitfalls and the and, and the successes, you know, it kind of is the bread and butter, really. Um, so we, we were delighted that you kind of had the, uh, you, you had the enthusiasm to come on and, and join us. But um, just to, sort of to, to get to know you a little bit, you know, you, you're a football journalist, um, you're obviously a football author. Um, what, what sort of has been your relationship with football? Um, just a lifelong one, I guess. It's probably no different to most uh, football fans uh, from around the UK. Just grew up in it. Um, family of football fans, um, playing football on the street from sort of well, as, as, as early as I can remember. My, my earliest football memories go back to um, the Barcelona team, uh, Johan Cruyff's dream team, uh, were the first sort of um, team that really kind of sparked my interest in, in football beyond um, beyond the, the borders of, of the, the Premier League. Um, Romario was my first football hero. Uh, I remember the the World Cup in '94. Remember my dad watching that. I'd have been seven at the time. Um, so yeah, it just goes back to uh, childhood fascination and being being a big fan through, throughout all my life. Yeah, I think sometimes it, it is those international tournaments that kind of do just capture our imagination for the first time, especially as kids. You know, I remember my first tournaments and it, and it was a World Cup as well. So, you know, it's it's just the, the, the water-to-wall football on, on telly um, that, that some, somehow grabs you, somehow grips you. Um, but in terms of your, your background in, in, in football journalism and that, and that sort of thing, um, you know, what is, I mean, you've had bylines in B, with BBC Sport, with The Guardian, The Independent, you know, you've, you've, you've been, you've been around, around the block a few times and, and you've seen it, you know, firsthand. I mean, what was sort of the, the motivation to, to start writing a, a book? I mean, to start writing The, the Dream Factory? Um, it, it's, it's always a question I find quite difficult to answer because it's, um, probably two and a half years ago that I started working on it. So the actual inspiration to do it, the, the kind of light bulb moment, I don't really remember, but I just um, it was just born out of a general fascination with with youth football that I've always had. I've always found it very intriguing. Um, it, it's a world that you don't often get uh, too much of an insight into. I think it's still uh, a world that has its doors quite firmly closed to the outside. I don't think um, clubs like revealing too much about what they do and what goes on behind the scenes. Um and I think uh, you hear kind of anecdotes of, of negativity and things that, that, that go around, um, but you don't hear too much about the, the processes uh, that, that happen um, and, and the day-to-day operation of, of these places and how how the system has evolved uh, for good and for bad. Um, so, yeah, it's just a fascination with those things and wanting to explore it in as, deep, as great a detail as I can. Um, I do remember being very unsure about whether it would be possible because – um, the key to this book is the access I was able to get and I was really kind of sceptical as to whether um, I would be embraced uh, and this idea would be embraced by the youth football world. Um, but luckily I was. I found um, I found that the people doing the day-to-day work, the coaches, the academy managers, the uh, the players, the, the parents, everyone has um, experiences that they want to share, either to spotlight their work or, or to, to raise an issue that they, they, they feel needs um needs more attention so uh, yeah the, the very first club I went to visit was was Crystal Palace and I remember being stood um, at, the, at the side of one of the training pitches watching their under 18s go through a session um, and just kind of realizing at that moment that 
you know, this is something that this is happening now. This is um, this is a project that is viable. Um, this is something that can make work. Um, so that was February of 2019. And uh, yeah, so from that point on, uh, that was that was, that that felt like the moment the the project to to do, to do this book um, really started to take form and to and to feel real. So yeah, that's that's where it goes back to. Yeah, I suppose sort of the wheels were in motion once you actually you got down there and you, you kind of you, you you had to double down. You couldn't really go back on it at that point. Yeah. And I mean, I think we're all going to be richer in terms of knowledge for for, for you making that decision because um, two hundred and fifty six pages uh, the Dream Factory has, and it is. I mean, as far as I've got through it at the moment, it is. Yeah, I mean, anecdotally, the, for somebody who thought that he knew quite a bit about academy football. There's, it just turns out that I do not. Um, yeah, very, very grateful for, for you um, for, for you having written the book. Um, but in terms of, you know, you're saying the access that you got was very important. Um, there are a number of case studies in the book and, and they're not sort of, they're not inaccessible. They're very relevant. They're very topical. Um, you know, they, they center on players such as your Marcus Rashford's, your, your Mason Mounts, who are, you know, very much at the forefront of footballing discourse in the United Kingdom at the very least. Um, and, you know, probably in the world as well. Um you know, you, you've had some really, really intriguing interviewees and, and, you know, people who you've spoken to to gain insight from. Um, would you say that there was anybody who who really sort of challenged the way that you've you perceived academies? Because, you know, you you said that obviously it seems a bit sort of like a, a closed book at times The you know, the it, it, it's a closed off industry in a way. Um, did you have sort of an idea of what it would be like going into it? And did anyone sort of kind of make you think otherwise once you'd actually interviewed and spoken to them um i don't think i had too many uh preconceptions just based on on what we discussed that, that you don't really see too much from that world until something seismic happens you know until a superstar breaks through or until there's a real kind of horror story um and both are, are very real aspects of the academy machine but uh the, the kind of the, the quotidian the day-to-day of it all is something that I think is still um, mysterious in a lot of ways. Um, so it, it was just fascinating to, to be able to see that um, up close and personal and to, and to get these real life stories and anecdotes from the people there. Um, but I think what I was most, uh, I don't know if surprised is the word, but encouraged by was um, a real shift towards um, the development of, of an individual, uh, um, the kind of holistic development that, that a lot of clubs are, are, are working towards now, that a recognition that the attrition rates are so high that um, it can't just be about producing one footballer from every 200 um, in an academy. It has to be about giving these young people an experience that will be enriching, um, whether they, you know, however far they make it through. Um, whether that is, is, is working to its fullest is something that... Um, it's still up for debate. Um, I think we've seen, I definitely explored both sides of that in my book as to whether, certainly I think the aftercare is still lacking um, from the game in general, but I think a lot of clubs, a lot of big clubs are doing very good work to uh, create rounded individuals and, and, and ensure that these children who are giving up so much of their spare time aren't um, losing too much of the childhood experience as well. That was something I certainly found uh, at Man United, who are one of the clubs and uh, um, I spent a lot of time working on and spent a lot of time with some very high profile coaches at, at that club learning about the developments of people like Marcus Rashford and how everything that we see him doing now off the pitch, although they, they don't wish to take credit for it in any way, um, they certainly provide a, a platform and a basis for the, those elements of a young person's personality to thrive. They're, they're, they have a philosophy um, they, they, they call right is might. Um, and it's just about uh, essentially doing the right thing in, in the right moment. So they'll make sure that when they take a, a youth team abroad, um, they uh, will get the uh, young players to take turns doing a speech and to, to thank the staff at the hotel. They stay out, they'll present pennants and sign shirts to people working in the canteens and things like that. They'll, they'll make sure they go and find the, the cultural hub of whatever city they're going to and, 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 and learn something so that the, the players come away with more than just a footballing experience and without, you know, the football blinkers on um, to really kind of broaden their horizons. And because, you know, in these top academies, players are, are traveling internationally from sort of nine, 10 years old. And, and I think if they were to go away, not feeling like they've, they've visited somewhere and feeling like they've just gone there to see another set of football pitches, then I think that's a real wasted opportunity. And I think there is definitely a recognition within the game, uh, especially at some of the, 
the bigger academies that, that that's something they need they need to be focusing on and i think that's something that is has improved and that is what uh, was has been one of my biggest takeaways and one of the things i found most encouraging about a system which can as we've seen um it can have negative effects on, on the young people that it takes in because just because of the sheer numbers uh, of children within it. Yeah, I think the the, the point about enrichment and, and the uh, the holistic approach. Um, I think that you know that yes, you are trying to produce the next Phil Foden on the next Mason Mount and the next Marcus Rashford, but at the same time, you can't be doing that at least not ethically by sort of casting aside 199 others to the wayside because essentially you know you that is that it's such a waste of mm-hmm. of potential it's such a waste of time people's you know people's hard earned time hard earned cash ca- you know transporting you know they the, they are essentially kids aren't they you know up the up the various motorways in the UK and, and I'm sure that it's the same uh, in in other countries as well and you know you can't you, you I think yeah to 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 give them something um, out of that experience even if it's not the the, the ultimate end goal that they set out to achieve when they first signed is, is something which I think is quite important. And the aftercare debate certainly is um, is, is, is an important one, uh, at the very least. Um, you, you mentioned Manchester United there, and the first chapter in the book is the Greater Manchester Divide. And I think, the, I mean, you're talking about takeaways just before then, and I think the, the, the biggest one for me from, from that chapter was, was finances. You know, I mean, they are, they, I mean especially at the, the, the bottom end, as in the... the you know the lower leagues. You know how how important are finances in terms of producing your know, players like the the trio that we just mentioned, the Mounts, Fodens, and Rashfords, because you know those those three have have obviously come through um, some elite academies. Uh, whereas you look at others who perhaps have have, have been uh, you know at maybe not. I mean they're, they're still by comparison uh, elite academies. They're not exactly your Sunday league club, but somebody like Deli Ali coming through at MK Dons or, you know, um, you know, Kyle Walker coming through at, at Sheffield United back in the day, you know, what is the, I mean, how important are the finances to, to, to producing, you know, elite players? Yeah, it's huge. It's, it's, it's um, as much the ability to attract the best young um, prospects as well. Um, so, so getting that kind of raw talent through the door and giving you the, the raw materials to then shape them into a superstar. So yeah, it's kind of twofold. Uh, and the chapter you mentioned there, uh, the Greater Manchester Divide, um, was something I kind of stumbled into in the process of, of writing the book because um, I went and visited Bury before uh, the club went under and, and spent a day with their academy director. Um, and it was just fascinating. I pulled up onto the car park of their of their training ground in Carrington, um, and it's the old training ground of Manchester City before they moved to the Etihad campus. Um, and and when you pull in, one one of the things I first realised was that the kind of weathered facade of, of the main building. Um, you could still see the outline of of Man City's club crest, and you could see the outline of the Man City. Um, logos and things that, that are on the side of this weathered building and, and the the lettering for, for Berry Football Club was missing some letters. It was just a real kind of illustration of the haves and the have-nots. So this, this rich super club kind of left this this facility for, for um, uh, greener pastures uh, a few miles away and bequeathed it to Berry and, you know, it doesn't have flood lighting, so they have to train somewhere else on, on, on dark evenings. Um uh, they had their their um, changing rooms were uh, stocked with um, lockers that were picked up secondhand from Liverpool's academy, which uh, I mentioned in the book was a kind of uh, tidy little metaphor for how they do their recruitment. Because Mark Litherland, the the academy director there, he's now at Bolton. Um, he told me about how their recruitment budget was five thousand pounds a year, <laughs> which is just you know when you think how much. Um, City's academy operation runs on it, it just pales in comparison so it's a real nice juxtaposition that these two teams who had um a lot in common geographically and, and the fact they once you know they, they both um occupied the same space uh, at one point or another to to juxtapose man city in their huge multi-million pound uh, category one academy operation with berries i think it was category three at the time um and yeah, just really threadbare. Um, their, theirs was all about um, generating finances for the club through player sales. So they had um, this process of identifying young players and they would separate them into categories from sort of the age of 12 and onwards. As players who had a chance of making their first team um, would kind of be the the kind of B B prospects in a lot of ways because the, the A prospects they'd expect have been selling on to what they called their customers, which were championship and Premier League clubs. 
before they even got to the the, um, the first team level. Um, so, and they had a lot of success in doing that. They've made around two and a half million pounds over the, the, the previous five years before the club shut down through selling uh, academy players um, up to the big, bigger clubs, and that was kind of what what their academy was there to there to do. Um, whereas at City, they I, I spoke to. Gareth Taylor, who is now the, the women's team manager, but he was under 18s manager at the time. Um, and we discussed how, you know, he, he wasn't allowed to go into any details, but he, he, he was very clear that it is part of the expectation that City sell players to help justify the cost of the running their academy. But the ultimate aim is to is to get a Phil Foden through the door. Um, so, yeah, it was it was fascinating to, to see those two, those two clubs and, and they're very different financial states. Um, next to one another and to see the the real effect um of money on on academy football on on, on an academy operation just because because of how alters priorities and how um it forces forces clubs to think differently uh, and it changes the kind of world they inhibit they that their place on the on, on the food chain essentially is entirely dictated by by their finances yeah, I think that's incredibly fascinating because you know the the business model and 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 it and you're right in saying that it it is a model is is completely different depending on your level of finance. You know, if you've got, I mean, somebody like Barry, obviously before they went they went under. You know, having the separate the, to, to me, you know, just hearing that you know separating, you've got your your A prospects and your B prospects, and the 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 idea is to essentially bring these players through your academy, but but to justify sort of you know continuing this the academy setup you have to sell them before they get to a point where they're ever going to reach the first team it kind of seems counterintuitive when you're running a football academy because the immediate thought is that all football academies are are, are you know a pur- purpose built to to bring players through for that club but of course that the financial necessity necessities often dictate otherwise you, you mentioned there briefly um that the, the Berry were category three at the time. Manchester City were obviously category one. Um, for for anybody who isn't aware of the different category systems uh, in in English football, that is, um, what what is the what does being category one mean? What does being category two, category three, obviously category one being the highest? You know, are there are there benefits? Are there drawbacks? Um, you know, are, are there increased costs that that come with operating a higher level academy? Yeah. So. Um... The category um, levels are in reference to the elite player performance plan, which I, I imagine some of your your listeners will be aware of to some extent because it's been um, fairly controversial within youth football in this country. What, what that is is the set of rules and protocols that govern um, uh, youth football within the top four leagues um, in England, so the Premier League and the, and the three football league divisions. Um, they abide by these set of, of rules, and each um, uh, each academy is graded category one to four based on their offering, based on their their facilities, their staffing levels, um, uh, and what they're able to provide for their, their young players. Uh, with one being the, the top and four being the lowest. Um, yeah, it do, it does come with associated costs. It's more expensive to run a category one academy than it is to run a category two, three, or four. Um, at the point at which the um, the EPPP guidelines were published in 2012, I think the estimate was between two and a half and 4.9 million a year for uh, to be the expected running cost of a Category One academy. Uh, that's almost certainly risen um, since then, um, and I think some academies cost upwards of 10 and 20 million a year to run um, based on. Uh, how much they're they're pumping into their recruitment and their facilities, and how much they're they're paying to get the best coaches and, and things like that for their players. So the guys like Man City uh, uh, are going to be spending a lot more than even other Category One clubs, like uh, say a Fulham, for example. Um, so yeah, the benefits that come with that uh, with with Category One, you are not restricted um, to the area within which you can recruit players from the age of fourteen upwards. Um, there is a 90-minute catchment rule, which means that uh, a club can only recruit uh, players who live within a 90-minute drive of their uh, training facility up until the age of 16. Um, if you're Category 1, that rule is stripped away. Uh, you can recruit nationally from 14. And if you're Category 2, I think you can recruit nationally a little bit sooner as well. Um, so, yeah, you have the advantage then if, if you're a City or a Man United or or a, a Middlesbrough, I think, or a Category 1 as well, uh, Newcastle. So, yeah, you 
can be really anywhere in the country you can recruit you can, you can look to scout down in london if you wanted to you can you can compete for the best players nationally at, at an earlier age so that's one of the benefits of being able to get talent through the door it's also it means you know it means inherently that your facilities are going to be better than than those of a category two or three club um, by and large so it means that you're able to attract players um uh, through through your offering there as well um so it's all about being able to get the best talent through the door and then it's all about what what you're able to do with them based on uh, based on your offering so that's the advantage to it but a lot of clubs are kind of starting to see or starting to believe that the uh the cost of, of operating a, a top category one academy is not necessarily worth it especially if you're still going to end up with with players being poached uh, before they get to the first team level before they reach their maximum uh, sell on value so clubs like like Brentford are, are, are stepped away from ETRIPP entirely and now operate a B team model where they're only recruiting players um, in much smaller numbers so they've shut down their academy and they run a B team which um, for which they recruit players in the sort of 16, 17, 18 age bracket who might have been elsewhere who might have slipped through the net but um, that their, their smaller group are, 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 is, is constructive players they believe each has genuine first team potential whereas um, a big conventional Category 1 academy might have 200 players um, across all the age groups, fully aware that only a small fraction of those even have the potential to make it to, to first-team level. A lot are, are what um, might kind of rather distastefully be referred to as bodies who are just kind of there to help the better prospects have training partners, essentially, and, and, and you know, can be at a club from the age of six right up until 18 without ever really having had uh, a realistic shot of making it in the first team and they'll just kind of fall away so yeah there are a lot of pros and cons to uh to, to category one and to into the academy system in general which is something that's being really debated because more and more clubs are are stepping away from it so it's a really interesting uh subject to kind of to monitor over the next few years to see what route a lot of clubs uh decide to go down with it and whether it will enforce any kind of changes to to the way that um the, the system is set up yeah, that, that whole debate about, you know, bodies um, and how, you know, X amount of players will essentially just become filler, essentially, um, is, is is an interesting one because it will, that will pervade into the debate around aftercare as well, because there will be an element of, you know, while the club know that uh, a high proportion of those players, particularly at a Category 1 academy, um, will, will not make it to, to the professional game, then there is, you know... Every in in the in the minds of all of those players, there will still be that. Well, I'm still here, so I've still got a chance. Um, and I think that I mean personally, from from my perspective and my sort of it's it, my um, my opinion is that obviously the, the aftercare is is something which, while I mean while you say it's still lacking, I, I'd be inclined to to agree with you because I think that the, the the model is a bit you know this is this is all or nothing. You have to sacrifice so much, and then in an instant it's gone. I mean. What is your take on on the aftercare of of young players who perhaps at sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, you know, they've been in the academy set up for ten years. It's been their entire life. It's been every weekend. It's been multiple nights per week. Um, you know, it's been it's been everything to them, and then it just gets stripped away. I mean, what is, I mean, I suppose it's better than um, in in the past when it was quite literally all or nothing, and there were no sort of backup plans. There was no sort of education intertwined with the football, um, but. You know, there's. I mean, I know there are some clubs who who you know get their their, their academy prospects into sort of uh, apprenticeship schemes and whatnot to 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 give them a, a I don't know a trade or a skill set that that's outside of football in the event that they do not make it. Um, and what's your what's your thoughts on sort of the aftercare, whether it's come a long way or whether it's still got a long way to go? Yeah. So so there are two chapters in my book which deal with um, the process of releasing players and then what happens then thereafter. Um, one called Dear Parent Guardian, uh, which focuses on the slightly younger um, ages. Um, so it begins with, I was able to uh, get hold of an email that a Premier League club sent to a, a seven-year-old boy, the, the parents of a seven-year-old boy. They released um, shortly after recovering from breaking his leg playing football. Um, and it was very impersonal. They, you know, they, it was one of those kind of letters, uh, emails where you were, you would click to add the recipient's name and they just hadn't bothered to click and it was just, it left it as dear parent guardian and, and this kind of very generic um, email they, they sent this boy who'd been playing with them since he was, um, I think he was five playing for their pre-academy. So he'd been with them for pretty much half of his life by the time that they let him go very sort of unceremoniously with no 
no real follow-up um so yeah I was, I was able to reproduce that and and then there's another chapter which focused on the slightly higher age group so guys who who have been released at sort of 16 to, to, to 19 kind of age range and, and that one's called um how many times can you face rejection because that's what that was the, the line that one of uh, a player who were, who'd been released by fulham he said that to me he said you know how many times can you face rejection because after he was let go um it's then the process of going on a lot of different trials and the, re- the rejection starts to mount up and he, after being told he wasn't good enough for a Premier League team in Fulham, who were Premier League at the time, um, he soon found he was being rejected by teams a lot down, lower down the pyramid and he was playing semi-professionally within a few months. There was just a lot of um, a lot of rejection stacked on top of uh, uh, further rejection and it was a really difficult time period for him. Um, I spoke also with people who are looking to help um, provide better aftercare from, from an outside as well. Um, there's a guy uh, uh, named Paul Mitten who was a youth player at Man United in the 90s. Um, he started a, an initiative called Revive, whereby he he's now a personal trainer. Um, so he provides um, personal training and some coaching and, and counselling to, to young players who have been released by, by clubs in the North West. Um, so the likes of United and City and Liverpool, they come to him and he offers bespoke, a bespoke package where it'll help get them back in shape for, for the trial process they're about to go on. He'll help, you know, he has connections within the game to help set them up. Um, but he's tried to connect with clubs uh, and make his, his his offering something kind of official and endorsed, but he's had the door shut in his face several times um, by by all the clubs he's met with and the governing bodies. So there's kind of reluctance from, from inside the game to accept help from outside it. I think what my general findings were um, from... We're looking into aftercare and the process of releasing uh, players is that the the game thinks it's a lot closer to, to cracking it than it really is. Um, I think clubs and in particular the governing bodies, the, the kind of the rule makers and the policy setters think they're a lot closer to offering an adequate um, aftercare package than they really are. Um, so though there have been strides that have been made, there's a lot of um, psychological help that's uh, supposedly offered to these young players, the PFA claimed to, to put on a lot of classes and the, the players I spoke to found that um, the outreach that they, they received was either very impersonal and, and felt like box ticking or it just didn't reach them at all. Um, so, yeah, there's definitely a big gap that that's the biggest area for me that um, that the, the game has to make up ground in. And that is a, 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 a theory shared by... A lot of high-profile coaches within academies as well. They they are of the same mind that at the moment the system uh, swallows up too many young people and spits out too many. Um, it, it, I was fascinated as well to learn that just how many of the coaches I spoke to and the academy managers would be in favour of of raising the age at which they can sign young players. So um, I'm sure. You, you and a lot of your listeners will have been aware that uh, last year Bayern Munich decided not to run age groups, I think, until around 12 years of age. So they don't take um, children younger than 12 at the moment or they've decided not to do that. And a lot of people in the game in this country are in favour of doing the same. Um, so at the moment, you can sign players from the under-9s age group up. Uh, so at the age of eight, uh, these players are committing to contracts, one-year contracts with a tie them exclusively to, to a club um uh, yeah and, and like i said a lot of a lot of people in the game are in favor of of not taking players that early letting them just be kids and letting them play with their friends and their school uh and then you know coming back and, and having a look at them at, at 12 or 10 or whatever it, whatever it might be so the the whole the whole uh machine is, is at the moment um necessitates a really high attrition rate uh, which i don't think is healthy and at this stage, although things have improved in terms of the aftercare, there's still a long, long way to go from from my perspective. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, I, I echo your points there. And I think it's, I mean, we're, we're merely scratching the surface really, aren't we? Because it's just, it's such a complex, a complex situation for so many people, so many families. Um, on that Bayern Munich point, though, we, we did, we, um, we, we had a, an article in, in well, a, a piece, a, a really well-written piece in in one of our recent handbooks about uh, Real Sociedad, obviously the, the, the La Liga club, who um, who I don't believe they, I think the earliest that they bring in players 
um, for, for their academy is around 12 or 13 uh, because they think that it's be- it's better for their for their young players to be to be participating in, in local youth football with their friends up until that point they don't see the merits of of bringing in players um, at the age of five six seven or and upwards up until their early teen years. And you know, putting putting them through this the system, they want the the players who come through to to maybe have a few little deficiencies to their game, but then have that 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 individuality as well. Um, and while it's you know, I mean, you look at the, the Real Sociedad and Athletic Bilbao, uh, sorry, Athletic Club, um, and they are, they, I mean, they're two teams from the Basque region of Spain. They, I mean, especially Athletic, they have, um, I mean, their, their club policy of of only fielding. Uh, Basque players is is a remarkable one, um, but it sh- it goes to show that you know in that region, um, that clearly something is being done right. That those two teams have been able to sustain themselves in um, in in the top flight of of Spanish football uh, and and sustain themselves quite well um, with a, a healthy stream. Um, certainly in Real Sociedad's case uh, of of Basque based players coming a lot of many of whom have come through the academy many of whom are, are household names um but also of course athletic club who who are they they, they recruit from from the local area and it's quite similar to to clubs um sort of um in 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 the UK in in that um the, the the chapter I can't remember it must can't remember the name of it um you're gonna have to remind me Ryan but it was the one about um Crystal Palace and the uh, the the beginning the um, diamonds on the doorstep I believe it was doorstep diamond mine yeah the, that's yeah, it yes yeah, you kind of mining the local local hotspots for, for the best young talent yeah 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 that 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 chapter is very very in, in, interesting as well um, and it it goes to show that perhaps bringing players in at five six seven while there will be some success stories um, Mason Mount being one and we'll get onto him. Um, that perhaps that's not always the best way to do things and that there will always be difference of opinion and there'll be different approaches. And if that's better in terms of an aftercare um, scenario, then perhaps that may be the way that things need to go. But um, yeah, it's it uh, as I said, we're, we're, we're merely scratching the surface and it is, it, it's a, it's an interesting subplot to, um, to, to academy football. Um, moving on though, and, and, and into sort of more just academy football in general, um, you know, you, you look at um, the, the, the England squad, for example, uh, at this summer's European Championships, and I think it was 23 of them out of the 26 had some form of experience at, at either academy level or, or at the beginning of their careers um, in, in the lower leagues. Um, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, I mean, it's a, it's a devil's advocate, advocate kind of question. Me asking you whether it's easier or better to join an elite setup uh, academy, or you know, go to a lower level academy. Somebody who's perhaps at cat two or cat three level, as opposed to cat one. I suppose it. W- what you're probably going to tell me is that it's completely different case by case. <laughs> but you know, I mean, you you have the chapter uh, towards the end of the, the, the towards the end of the book, La Masia on of the lower leagues. Um, which uh, I'm yet to get my teeth into, actually, but I'm looking forward to um, to, to reading that bit. But um, could you give us maybe a summary of of that 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 chapter and and your thoughts on on the differing approaches, really, of whether you uh, you'd go for an elite setup or you'd be going for 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 you know going through the lower leagues, where maybe the the route and the pathway to first team football is a, a bit clearer. Yeah, so the chapter La Masia of the lower leagues is about. Um... The, the teams outside of the, the the rich academies who are um, trying to compete and trying to innovate to to, to produce players um, on smaller budgets. Um, so uh, the reason I referenced La Masse in particular is because I went to Shrewsbury Town and met with their academy manager David Longwell, who uh, was a really impressive guy, a Scottish coach. Um, he uh, made his name at St Mirren by making St Mirren the the third most productive academy in Scotland after, of course, Celtic and Rangers, made them competitive with, with the old firm Big Two. He then had experience in America with Orlando uh, City and um, New York Red Bulls uh, running their academy, um, You know, working with Jesse, Jesse Marsh as well in New York and everything he learned there. And his principles have, have always been based around um, Barcelona and watching what they do and how they develop players. So, He's now brought that to Shrewsbury, um, so it's the, the the kind of Cruyffian ideals splashed with a little bit of of the Red Bull pragmatism, um, and it, it was just fascinating to learn about how his approach to developing players and how that that um, translate to a team in League One uh, and and the players they're looking to produce for their first team. Uh, but I also went to Kidderminster, a team who are outside of the football league at the moment, and 
they had really had a really really ambitious plan to not only develop their academy and make it one of the hottest destinations in the West Midlands for the for the young talent uh, competing with the likes of Shrewsbury and, and Wolves and Warsaw and, and West Brom and the teams around them, but they also wanted to uh, create an academy a bit like the uh, the is it UF US UCFB I, I might be getting the the acronym wrong there, but uh, the the, the one that's with its campus based at uh, the Etihad and at, at Wembley, uh, the, which offers sports specific degrees. Um, they wanted to do the same thing in Kidderminster. They wanted to make the football club um, and its affiliated university that they were hoping to build the central hub of, of the town. Um, so it was a town that was known for the carpet industry up until kind of the 50s and 60s when that industry started to really decline. Um, so it's the chairman I spoke to there, who's who's now no longer with the club, but I'm assured that the plan is still in place. Um, they were really hopeful of making um, the club a kind of community asset and, and, and a real big employer and, and provider of opportunities for young people within within the region, within the town. And, and then I also went to Colchester, who were, at the time I wrote the book, were the highest ranked uh, Category 2 academy. Uh, sorry, the lowest ranked, lowest um in terms of uh, their position within the football league, they're the lowest team to have a Category Two academy, um, being down in the in the fourth tier, uh, and just looking at how ambitious they are with their project and the facilities they have. They've got a really nice academy there. I spoke um, to John De Souza, who was academy director, who's since been promoted to to the role of I think of director of football there, and how they they are looking to give chances and, and create. First, they have they, they have targets around making at least fifty percent of their first team in terms of uh, both minutes played and, and number of players in the squad to be coming from their academy. So they're, and they're using an approach which kind of mimics what um, Liverpool and, and Man United are doing with a real individual focus to development. So, yeah, I was, I was, I was the, the aim of the of La Masse of the lower leagues in that chapter is to take a look outside of the, the big budget um, famous academies uh, and look at the different processes that are going on that people are looking to compete because whilst, while a lot of clubs down there are, are kind of either disbanding or, or reducing their academy offering, there are some who are still kind of flying the flag for, for development and, and looking to innovate in different ways that is cost effective. So yeah, and how that plays into your question about whether it's better to, to join a club of that ilk or whether it's better to, to be at a Category 1 academy where competition is going to be higher. Yeah, I think it is, like you said, you know, the obvious answer is that it's a case-by-case thing. I think if you're a, a Phil Foden-level talent, then you, you probably are better off um, at a Man City where you're on this kind of destined path and you're, and you're playing alongside the best of the best and being coached by the best of the best. Um, and then, you know, it might be the case that only one, one out of every age group gets a chance, but if, if you're pretty sure of being that one, then then um, that's going to be the best place for you. But not everybody's going to be ready for that. I think you know, it, it probably suited someone like Deli Ali's development to be at MK Dons, where he, he got a lot of a lot of exposure to to higher age group football at a young age and was in the first team there at 16. And consequently, by the time he went to Spurs at 18, he was kind of robust and was able to cope with the, the physical side of the game and was able to come in and make a difference for Spurs really quickly. Um so it depends on, on the individual and their character, uh, their, their talent level um, and, and their developmental rate as well because some, some players develop at a slower rate. Um, so if they went to a big academy, they might be behind the curve for a few years and, and they wouldn't necessarily get the chance to to uh, to, to, to kick on. Like the, 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 the natural progression rate might have come a little bit later. So by, by the time they've reached that stage, they've already been let go and are having to rebuild elsewhere. So maybe it's better to if you are that kind of person to, to start lower and work your way up. Um, but I think it's, I guess it's encouraging that there are still a lot of clubs who, who view youth development as something worth putting a lot of focus into and that there are opportunities there at clubs like Colchester where they're looking actively to get as many of their young players into their first team as they can because there's a real pathway there that isn't, certainly isn't as, as free-flowing at the, at the Premier League level. Mm, no, I know where you're coming from. It's kind of a you know uh, going back to the, the 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 argument about different models for different clubs on different financial planes. Um, it's it, it it I mean we come back to finances and it does dictate you know. Um, but you, you were referring to Phil Foden there. Um, obviously you spoke to you know people who've been uh, instrumental in his development and and um, uh, who've held you know major roles at Manchester City, but uh, across Manchester as well. Obviously you spoke to people who were. 
um, instrumental in Marcus Rashford's development. And you've already touched on the the personal development, not just the professional side of things um, that, that sort of makes uh, Manchester United youth team players, or at least in in, pra- in, in theory, tries to make them uh, socially conscious as, as, as well as being possessing that that elite mentality to make it to the top at a club like uh, Manchester United um, but sort of you, you, there, there is a chapter in, in, in the book um, called Raising a Rashford um, and you know I, I, I suppose you spoke to a, a breadth of people about about Marcus Rashford I, I saw uh, something about uh, Fletcher Moss Rangers uh, in there which was obviously the, the club that, that Rashford played for before uh, signing for Manchester United um, was it was it I mean given the the backdrop of, of everything that, that Rashford has done with fair share and, and lobbying the British government and whatnot, you know, was it an interesting one to, to, to research and to speak to people about? Because, um, I mean, I, I can only imagine that people would have the same thing to say over and over about him. Yeah, no, it really was. It, it really was. I, I spoke at length. Um, one of the stars of this book in a lot of ways is Tony Whelan, Man United's assistant academy director. He's been with the club, I think since 1990 in, in some form of, youth coaching role or another and is and is still there now and is a real kind of he's kind of the oracle of, of youth football in this country and is certainly the oracle of my book because it starts and ends with him and he's his insight is splattered throughout it. He's he's a guy who is um he's in his late sixties now but still has the absolute verve um and just joy and love for the game and, and love his job and a real kind of sense of responsibility to the the, the children he he essentially looks after and develops. Um he, he's acutely aware of, of that responsibility and to see the way he kind of glazed over and talked about Marcus Rashford um, w- w- was really, really interesting to me because here's a guy who's you know, seen it all in terms of, of youth football um, and has done a, an awful lot as well, like I said, with that writer's mic policy. He's, he, um, the, 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 some of the, the coaches that United, uh, I spoke to Paul McGuinness as well, who's he now works for the FA, but was a long time United uh, youth coach and very respected uh, figure within youth football in this country. And, uh, and and Paul referred to people like Tony as the guardians of the United spirit. Um, so the ones who are kind of keeping hold of, of the, the golden thread that runs through through the club from the from the Busby Babes and from even, even before that United. Um, if not the first, certainly one of the first to have have an affiliated youth team back in the nineteen thirties, and have always prized uh, the development of young players. So people like Tony Whelan are, are those who, who are carrying that that tradition, and also, um, like I said, really focusing on on developing young people um, and giving them opportunities to to explore their. Uh, altruistic sides like like with Marcus Rashford or their their ability to help others and their their their, their ability to realise the the um, the privilege of their position. And but when he speaks about Marcus Rashford, he talks about what an honour it is for him to have worked with somebody like that to have gone on and do what he's done. And he, he spoke about how um, it's just yeah a real honour and a privilege for everyone at the club to have kind of worked with him along his journey and and, and been a part of that. Um, so while they certainly sort of provided um, a platform, like a, like I said, for him to explore that side of his personality and that that willingness and desire to, to help other people and help people less fortunate or help people who have come from a similar background to him but who haven't had the ability to to raise themselves out of it through a um, a natural uh, football talent, um, he's taken that upon himself and and it's it, it's not only kind of inspired the people who he, who he's helping it's inspired people who he's working with and, and and help them kind of become better at what they're doing become better coaches become better developers of people by seeing the fruits of Rashford's labor so yeah he's someone who has had I think we all know about his, his impact on a national scale but his impact within the youth football as well as something that I think is going to be felt for generations yeah, he's kind of a benchmark, isn't he, um, for for somebody who is just you know like so many of us um, who is who's made it who's made it good and and, and recognizes that um, on a on a professional and a on a, on a social platform. Um, and yeah, I think we'll we'll not stop champ. I mean, Marcus Rashford turns twenty four, uh, I think, later this year, and that kind of is when he passes the scouted football threshold. But I don't think we're ever going to stop championing him, uh, championing him. Uh, on this podcast or or at Scout in general, and and I don't think you know anybody else who who's sort of been uh, affected 
or even just been inspired by his work is will, will either because it is just you know there, there is I think we're very fortunate that that somebody with such a, a platform um, such a standing within the game has has taken it upon themselves and I think the, the credit must go to, to Manchester United as well in in part um, because they've clearly you know the the their their processes in producing a person not just a player um certainly is uh is, is paid dividends there for for so many people who it may not it may not have even realized it would have helped when they set out that as their sort of plan to to produce young players um moving on to sort of a a, a little bit further south and i mean we did an episode on on the scouted football podcast a, a, a while ago uh, on south london and um you know it's an area that you'll have obviously researched extensively ryan because um, you know, South London. It was, I think there's a there's a there's a section in the book where you say that I think it was at the last World Cup. I think oh no, no it was uh, it's the 2018 in the Premier League, I believe it was. Um, the 14 percent of the the players um, were you know some they hailed from South London in in some way, shape, or form, um, which again is is a remarkable statistic, and it's one that I don't think I'll ever get over because you know the Premier League is the you know the self-purported best league in the world, and yet the, there is such a, a a spread of talent from everywhere, from all corners of the world, and yet you know almost a fifth of it is is coming from from one very very particular area of of London, um, and it, it made me think when I was re- sort of leafing through it that you know you've got academies in in one club cities uh, like Norwich for example who who do good things with their academy they've produced a fair few players um, and and they continue to to do well out, out of their uh, academy in terms of players coming through the first team. Um, Todd Cantwell being one, of course. Angus Gunn has secured a move back there from Southampton. Um, but you've also got the academies in London, like your Crystal Palaces, uh, in, obviously the big one in South London, but also Chelsea, who are the, arguably the biggest academy in the in in the UK, um, and and one of, if not the most successful, um, based on you know silverware and the amount of players they've produced. Um, I was speaking to, to Tariq Lamptey, obviously of Brighton now, um, not so long ago, and he was saying that, um, you know, at Chelsea, he came in when he was around, well, I think must have been about eight, eight or nine, um, came in at roughly the same time as, as, as Conor Gallagher and a number of other players who have then gone on to make it professionally, maybe not necessarily at Chelsea, but they've made it to a very, very good standard. And he was saying that, you know, I, I just, it was second nature. After a while, you know, we were playing in youth cups and the UEFA Youth League and whatnot. And we were just, we trusted each other because we'd played together so long, you know, friends became brothers and that sort of thing. And I was, it, it made me think, you know, what, is is there a benefit from, from, from having a, an academy which is so, so highly regarded in in a in a huge a huge area like London, which has the the pulling power of Chelsea. To be a Chelsea in in London is huge. I think that is um, it's probably pretty much your ideal scenario because, like you said, it's it's such a hotbed. Um, the downside to those hotbeds is is that competition is rife within them. Um, so you mentioned that that area of South London. Um, it's uh, it's probably a, a football hotbed com- comparable with the the suburbs of Paris. It's it's such a, a rich scene to be mined um, for creating young footballers. Uh, but, but the the issue then is that even those um, even if you talk about being restricted to a catchment of, of a ninety minute drive from within the training base, there are still probably a dozen or more clubs who can compete for those players. Um, among them, the likes of Chelsea and Arsenal and Spurs, who have got big expensive category one academies um so to be one of those big boys in, in an area like that i think is probably the ideal situation um if you're looking to acquire the best possible young talent um yes but then if you're if you're somebody like Norwich, like you say you have um more of a monopoly on your area um but it's perhaps not as rich a, a hotbed um so you then you know there are fewer fewer players to to select from, but you you probably have an easy run at them. So yeah, it's, it's a bit of a bit of a trade off. Um, um, but I think yeah, if if you can, I mean, it's, it requires a lot of money and a lot of years and of investment and and building that status. But I suppose uh, if you want to be in anyone's situation, you want to be in a situation of somebody like a Chelsea, who are known for for the players they produce. Um, they're starting now also to become known for having a bit of a pathway which they didn't always. Um, but I think they certainly are a club who who come as close to any other to uh, guaranteeing, if in any way, uh, the, the best chance at a future in the game at some level. So, um, 
to have that reputation, to have that status, and to be in an area like London where you can hoover up that 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 talent, even if um, you know they're not as close to the the real rich hotbed of South London as, as a Crystal Palace, they do have have the pulling power. Um, that that's that's the, the, the probably the best situation to be in. That's going to help you get the best talent and obviously then have the best chance of developing them for, for whatever means you, you desire, whether that's for an eventual sale or for to be a prospect for your first team. I think the the ninety minute. Uh, catchment is a is an interesting interesting system it's an interesting imp- implementation i think um and uh just sort of lo- lo- looking briefly on google maps within that 90 minute catchment from from chelsea's cobham uh, academy setup um is is portsmouth and that's where where mason mount is, was was born um i don't know whether that was where he was uh he was discovered so to speak but i, I do remember him being when i was reading through uh, i do rem- i do recall um him you know coming into the chelsea academy at a very young age i think it was around 5 or 6 um he may have even been in in the pre academy uh, i think uh, I, I remember reading that as well um but he's one of the, the the other case studies you've got in in the in in the the dream factory uh and you um and i was reading something last night uh, by adam newson who's um the uh, one of the, the chelsea reporters at football.london I, w- I was just intrigued to 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 learn about the the route that that mason mount has has essentially taken from his childhood years to to becoming uh, you know an england regular um uh, and a chelsea regular a champions league winner um and 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 one of the the best english players in the country i mean from your case study you know what who who are the who are the main drivers really behind you know developing mason mount that we know today yeah so yeah mount is another one i i, I interviewed his dad um uh, and as, as well as a few uh, chelsea coaches and scouts um to kind of really tell his story uh to the point at which he was scouted by Chelsea and then signed on for them. The reason being is that I, I guess the crux of this book, what I wanted it to be is, is is answer the question of how this young um, upcoming generation of English footballers, which of course includes Mount and Rashford and Foden and Trent Alexander-Arnold, how were they created and, and also at what cost? So looking at the, the downsides of it all, cost in terms of finances and cost in terms of the attrition of the young people. And yeah, Mount was somebody I wanted to, to look at because uh, I find his path quite interesting. Um, he was spotted out in, in Portsmouth. He was a huge Portsmouth fan. Uh, as a boy, he used to go all the time with his dad. Um, he was spotted at six. And um, you can't sign exclusively to an academy until until you reach the under nines level. So he was still able to train with, uh, with um, Portsmouth. And I believe he also trained with Southampton for a bit as well. So he had options, but Chelsea were there first. And kind of made presented themselves quite quickly as his most ardent suitors um, and made, made made real kind of sure of their their desire to to acquire him and when the time came to choose just one club even though he was a, such a huge Portsmouth fan um, so I spoke to um, Tony Mount about um, how Mason was scouted I also spoke to the scout who spotted him a guy named Bob Windsor and uh, Chelsea scout um, it was a bit of a slightly underhanded trick that they used. Um, it certainly wasn't in contravention of any any rules or anything like, or any ethical codes or anything like that. But it was um, a little bit of a wily trick of the trade, whereby um, he was spotted playing for his local team, a team named Ball Hunt um, uh, in Portsmouth. Uh, I believe it was his first ever time playing a competitive game on, on grass. He was so young and so so fresh. Uh, he was six years old. Um, and the Chelsea scout Rob Windsor approached um, Tony Mount because um, Tony has a background in, in non-league, non-league football in, in the south of the country. So he was quite a well-known figure around uh, around the local scene. So uh, Rob Windsor, the Chelsea scout, knew who he was. He approached him and said, is that your boy, the number seven? Tony said, yes. He said, I'd love to take him up to Chelsea. Um, Tony Mount said, well, basically... Um, He's he's just six years old. He's only just started playing. I'd rather leave it. To be honest with you, he's uh, he's enjoying his football. Let's just leave it and see where it goes. And um, so the Chelsea scout went away, accepted accepted the uh, the response. Um, but then a couple of weeks later, Tony Mount gets a call from Borhunt's manager, who's very excitedly telling him that they've been invited to a tournament at, at Chelsea's Cobham training ground. The whole team are going to be going up for the day uh, to play against a, a bunch of local teams. So. Uh, the idea being that Chelsea, although the parent didn't want Mason Mount to go and train with them in their pre-academy just yet, that they, they were banking on their ability to get him through the door and wow him with their facilities and their, their methods to be able to kind of turn the boy's head. Um, so that's that's what happened. They went up to this tournament three weeks later. 
Um, they won it. Bull Hunt won the tournament, beating out a lot of the, the top local teams. And at that point, they invited Mason and a couple of other boys from that team to train with them every Friday as part of their pre-academy. And uh, yeah, as, as, as Tony Mount said, you know, at that point, they had him. And he couldn't really say no because he'd been there, he'd seen it. Um, and yeah, that was for the next um, however many years he was he was carting him up and down the motorway to take him to the training at Cobham once a week. Uh, so yeah, that that was an interesting insight into um, not just how they spot the players and, and how far they cast their scouting there, but also how they get them through the door and how they over, overcome any obstacles uh, that, that uh, might be presented by reluctant parents. Um, so yeah, you certainly um, wouldn't say it was a, a, a mean trick or, or an underhanded or uh, certainly no, no rules were broken, but it was a bit of a wily little trick of the trade to get him through the door. Hmm. And, and Tony Mount was also keen to point out that once they were there, they were very happy to be there. Uh, they they love Chelsea, always have loved. And that's why when the time came at, at eight years old, Mason chose Chelsea to, to sign with over Portsmouth, the, the club he grew up supporting because they were, you know, they took such good care of him. Um, Guys like Michael Beale was a big part of his development. He's at Rangers now as part of Stephen Gerrard's staff. Um, he was also uh, he also worked with Trent Alexander Arnold and, and others at Liverpool. Uh, so yeah, he would be in terms of um, the key coaches in his development. He's certainly one of them, and um, they did they, you know, they felt they did such a good job with him that the the little the kind of the little trick they used to get him through the door was pretty quickly forgiven. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. And and sort of reading through that, it was it was one which kind of it draws a little bit of a smile because it's like, ah, oh, okay, yeah, little trick of the trade. Yeah, you've I've seen you've rejected us, but we'll see, we'll have the last laugh. And obviously, you know, it wasn't as you say, it wasn't an underhand tactic. It wasn't um wasn't anything untoward. And ultimately, the final decision will have rested with with the Mount family. And um, it was yeah, Chelsea just simply put it, put the opportunity in front of them, and uh, and and obviously, yeah, the rest is history. But I think with Chelsea and, and sort of my experience of uh, speaking to people who've either been involved with the setup there or they know people who have, it's always been that that Chelsea's um, you know they're, they're they're good at that. They're good at getting down to the you know they're good at knowing what will make people tick and why it's good to, to, and, and how they can um, persuade uh, whether it's reluctant parents or reluctant players that this is the right place for them. Um, and I think it, it, it comes back to something I was speaking uh, to Jordan Jarrett Bryan about on, on that South London podcast. And it was that half the battle is understanding that these boys who are coming from different, who are playing in the same teams together a lot of the time are coming from diverse backgrounds um, they're coming from you know different family setups and whatnot and it's about catering to to the individual um, rather than a blanketed approach of you know this is how we're going to do it here and you're all going to abide by the same rules and whatnot and it beams but I, I, I'd probably describe it as the Fabio Capello method um, of, of maybe being a bit more uh, what's the word regimented um, than 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 what Chelsea do at the moment, which I, I think is, is is quite good because they do cater to to um to having different different lads from from different age groups and and, and different backgrounds and um, different settings um, in 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 the same same teams and whatnot and and I think that's that's one of the things that obviously becomes a lot easier when you have more coaches when you have more player liaisons and whatnot. Um, and obviously that's because you have a, a greater budget, but it's it's something which I think has been has, has certainly been done right in that regard. Um, Ryan, that's pretty much all I, I had to cover on on this episode. A nice round hour. I think we've we, it's absolutely flown by, but um, a, a, a complete um, assessment of, of the book would probably take a, a long, long, a long, long while. But I'd, I'd implore anybody who has any interest in youth football, uh, academy football, particularly in the UK. Um, to 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 get Ryan's book to pre-order that because it is just so in depth. It, it, you know the anecdotal evidence of how so so many of these important and vital players in in I mean in the current England team. It's not as if this is something which is um, which is no longer relevant. It is absolutely at the heart of the the current discourse around the England team. Um, then I'd, I'd implore them to to check out the book. Yeah, Ryan, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you very much for for your insight and and for for taking the time. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I really enjoyed chatting. Thanks, Joe.
no no problem at all um yeah if this is your first time listening to the scouted football podcast um please do check us out on youtube as well uh, leave us a like or, or comment or let us know how we're doing if you'd like uh, to to hear on specific episodes specific teams specific players do give us a shout out as well um but yes i've been joe donahue this has been the scouted football podcast uh thank you for your time stay safe take care bye for now